Welcome to AI Ethics in Radiology, Emory University Center for Ethics podcast on the applications of artificial intelligence in radiology. This podcast will examine the problem of a machine learning model's making unreliable predictions based on its taking shortcuts that fail to capture important information. My name is John Banja. I'm a professor at the Center for Ethics at Emory University. And for this podcast, I'm very pleased to be interviewing Joshua Robinson, lead author of a recent paper appearing in Archive. Joshua Robinson is a PhD student at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology's Computer Science and Artificial Intelligence Laboratory and the Laboratory for Information and Decision Systems. He did his undergraduate work in pure mathematics on discrete probability theory at the University of Warwick in Coventry, England. Joshua Robinson was lead author on a paper that recently appeared in Archive on the ways contrastive learning might lead to more reliable predictions in AI. In the paper, Josh and his co-authors propose a solution to prevent shortcuts by forcing the model to focus on more complex features of the data that the model might have missed or not considered. Because it's often difficult, if not impossible, to tell how certain deep learning models make their decisions, the model's accuracy, and especially its generalizability, may be uncertain. Because models often focus on the simplest features of an image to decide which pairs of inputs are similar and which are dissimilar, Josh and his team work to make that discrimination task harder by having the model focus on all the useful characteristics of the data when making its decision. We began the interview with Josh responding to my request for an overview of his work and its importance in enhancing the effectiveness of machine learning models. I'm really interested in trying to develop better methods for training deep neural networks. Um, in particular, I'd like to take looks at different components of the, the pipeline, the overall training pipeline, and try, and try to understand maybe the importance of the different pieces and to, and to perhaps try to discover if there is some kind of suboptimality in certain components mm -hmm. and to really just 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 dig into that and study it in a bit more detail and hopefully come up with some kinds of like resolutions to these problems. So that's in the most uh, broadest kind of sense, but I'm really interested in a, a couple of key uh, uh, features or aspects of, of uh, training these deep, ne deep networks. The first is that I would really like to be able to train these things without requiring too much human annotation. So I'd like to be able to show this model just sort of like raw images alone, say, uh, if it's an image-based model, without requiring any kind of information that's given by a human labeler telling you the contents of the image or anything like that. I wanted to be able to learn something useful from that kind of data. And I'm also really interested- Excuse me for a second though, though Josh. Uh, so if you're training uh, a mm -hmm. model though, uh, if I'm training that model, I would nevertheless still tell it during the training phase, uh, this is pneumonia, this is an image of pneumonia, this is not an image of pneumonia. You would tell it at least that though, wouldn't you, or no? Not necessarily. So in, in this setup, actually, what I'm imagining is that we're not going to try to make any kind of prediction at all, you know, because you probably think of some uh, neural network model as being some black box that takes an image as input and makes some prediction right. as an output. In instead, what we try to do in this case is not to predict anything per se, but just map the image to some kind of lower dimensional, simpler representation of that input. So it might boil down to really just a, 
a vector of like 100 numbers, 100 real numbers that somehow characterize the uh, aspects of, of that data. And we want to do that in such a way that this, this thing I'm calling a representation could then be used for lots of different purposes later on. So we're not just trying to predict one thing or other here. We're trying to come up with a sort of holistic, more general understanding of the input, which could then be used for many different tasks later on. So are, are you then trying to secure or, or elicit explainability from, uh, uh, from your, your model? I mean, are, are you looking for the model to, to explain what it's focusing on and how important this feature is versus that feature versus that feature? Not as such. We're more focused on just trying to extract generally useful, generally predictive features from the data. It okay. would be wonderful if we could explain exactly which features our model uh, is, is extracting from, from the raw data. But unfortunately, that tends to be really difficult with these deep networks. Uh, the kind of this, the representation you end up getting is more kind of this kind of uh, smushy mixture of lots of different features, like across all of these different uh, coordinates. Uh -huh. so it's really hard to disentangle uh, the different components of, the, of this representation and to understand uh, what each of them actually means. Right. So, uh, so, so, from, so from my understanding, that, that is a really important feature of where we're at and, tr and troubling feature of where we're at right now. Now, tell me if I'm right or wrong, but my reading of the literature uh, suggests that most of the models that we have right now are black box models. We don't know how they reach their conclusions, uh, but gosh, they seem to be pretty accurate. We, but as, as your work shows, we don't know if they're fixated on noise versus signal, um, and, and that's where we're at right now. So your work then really attempts to take us in advance of that sort of thing and, and clarifies uh, uh, the, the thinking, if you will, of, or the analytical, uh, uh, the, the, the analysis of, of, of the algorithm. Would I be, would I be kind of right uh, about that? Am I going in the right direction? I, I think that was fair. But there is kind of two very different um, perspectives or approaches you could take here. So although this stuff is very much, the, the stuff that I work on is very much related to interpretability, the kinds of tools and approaches are, are really quite distinct. So mm -hmm. in interpretability, you're usually trying to do, um, uh, there's very roughly speaking, like a couple of things that you may try to achieve. First, you may already have a model and you may try to sort of, come up with some method of being able to query and ask that model, why did you make the prediction that you did? Um, that's one thing people will sometimes try to do. Uh, but, so they already have a model and they try to extract some kind of interpretation or explanation from it. The other way around, people sometimes try to build sort of intrinsically interpretable models. So they actually change something about the way that you're gonna train or build this model in the first place to make it more interpretable. Mm -hmm. um, my work is a little bit different from those kinds of approaches because we're really just trying to understand uh, with the kind of current state-of-the-art techniques that people actually use, these very black box type of methods, to try to understand which components of the training process uh, that uh, you run with these models affects how they learn features. So I'm not really trying to explain anything at all. Uh, so Josh, you have repeated that your model does not make predictions. It doesn't make classifications. Um, mm -hmm. uh, tell us one, once more though, just what that model ultimately does. What is its ultimate deliverable? Mm -hmm. So in a very 
mathematical sense, it's a it's a just a function which is going to take as input some image or something like that. And the output it's going to give you is a bit different from a prediction. So instead of giving you a class uh, or like tell you what class some input belongs to, it's going to return a vector of numbers. And that's something we would call a, a representation or an embedding. And the idea is that that representation contains lots of information, but in a compressed form about that input you gave it. So it's a very com compressed, higher level understanding. So the hope would be that that representation would be able to have uh, some information uh, contained within it that would be able to tell you about all different parts of interesting parts of the input. Of the, uh, of and the, the idea image. there, yeah, of the image, exactly. Yeah, of the image. And the idea there is that if you're able to train that kind of model, then given that representation, it will suddenly be able to be uh, very easy to solve lots of different tasks that you may sure. want to perform. Sure. I mean, one can see data curators, you know, using the information that you get from your model to purify, if, if you will, the, uh, the, the, the images or, or simply to save the important signals in those images and delete the, the noise uh, from those images. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, and I've been especially interested in the question of uh, when you're training these kinds of models, and by the way, this whole type of method that we use for training these models is something called self-supervised learning. Uh, and a special case of self-supervised learning or a particular approach to doing self-supervised learning is this thing called contrastive learning, which we may talk about later on. Uh, but I'm especially interested in trying to understand um, how, which kinds of features of the data these methods are actually going to learn to pick out. In particular, whether or not they're going to learn some kinds of shortcuts. Right. Uh, so so uh, when you the training process that you use to, to obtain these features that you're extracting um, may cause the model to just learn some parts of the input and not others. And if it does that, then it means that this representation that you've extracted is only going to work on certain types of tasks. It's only going to be predictive or useful for certain tasks that you may want to perform. Mm -hmm. And so if, if indeed your model has uh, forgotten or ignored some features of the input data, it's really important to know that because Absolutely. that will tell you that it's going to completely fail on certain types of tasks. Right, right. And, and you know, uh, the podcasts that, that we do uh, have an ethical direction to them. And I think mm -hmm. you've just hit on, you know, what the ethical importance and significance of this is. Obviously, we want to evolve more accurate models so we can deliver care or whatever it is we're doing in an improved uh, way that will, that will benefit patients. So, mm -hmm. so, um, so your, your work sounds quite novel. And I mean that I think you, you, you really are pushing the edges of the envelope because it, it seems to me that the rest of the field is not where you are yet, that you're, you're kind of writing a crest of, of, of a new research wave that is kind of not rethinking what, what, what we're doing, but going to make a serious contribution to improving what it is we're doing. Well, you know, I, I do my best, but there, there are many other people or there are others in machine learning who are trying to understand this question of what kinds of features 
does your model learn to pick out? So I'm not trying to make any claim of uniqueness here. There is some, you know, there is some really awesome other people out there uh, working on uh, similar and related questions as well. Right. Um, for example, one very like fundamental uh, thing that people have looked at is in convolutional neural networks. They found that uh, th these models have a so-called texture bias which basically means that they think that the model is really just looking at the texture of the things in the image as the main signal that helps it to decide uh, what prediction to make. Mm -hmm. And so in particular, it's not focusing so much on the overall big structure, like the shape of objects, but really just the texture. And so one really nice experiment some people did to illustrate this is they take a picture of a cat and they overlay on top of the picture of the cat, the texture of an elephant. And so, and so in some sense, like, you know, it's got the kind of like crinkly skin of, a, of, a, of an elephant. And so in some sense, this picture has some, some elements of catness because you can see the outline of the cat, but it's also got some element of uh, like a quality of an elephant because of the skin is clearly uh, that of an elephant. And so you might just out of curiosity, want to ask yourself, well, what would your model, your convolutional neural network uh, predict uh, on this example? And, and um, it, it turns out that it, it predicts that it, this thing is an elephant. Um, okay. it, it, it thinks that that information is somehow more important than the shape uh, information in there. And so this is a really interesting observation people have made. And it's a quality that's quite particular to the, the network architecture, the convolutional neural network. Um, right, right. So, uh, so you mentioned contrastive learning, and uh, mm -hmm. I, I want you to talk about that. And I also want you to, to clarify the implicit feature modification uh, aspect mm -hmm. of, your, of your work. So uh, first, let's start with contrastive learning. What's that? Sure. So contrastive learning is a really big topic now uh, that's really come into its own in the last two or three years. Um, and it's, a, it's an approach to training a neural network without this supervision. As I mentioned before, we're trying to use just images as input to train this uh, train this model without any kind of human annotation whatsoever. And the reason why it's called contrastive is because of how you show the data to the model while you're training it. Essentially what you ask the model to do is to learn, the, learn to tell the difference between a pair of similar looking inputs uh, versus a pair of dissimilar looking inputs. Mm -hmm. So you'd be able to like, uh, compare two inputs and tell if they are similar or not. And so the big question comes, well, how do you generate the similar inputs to show to your model? Um, because in particular, you're not, because we're trying to be in this setting where we don't have human annotations, you can't just take two pictures of elephants and say, okay, well, these are, these are similar inputs, uh, similar images, because we don't have that kind of uh, information about the input. We just have images, like nothing else. And so what people actually do is they tend to take a single image and then do some kinds of like data augmentations on that. So they would take a little crop from one part of the image and a little crop from the other part of the image and then treat those two cropped images as a pair of similar samples huh. and you learn learn to identify that those are similar to one another you so, train your model me, so uh, so so then you don't have to feed the machine a hundred thousand images of elephants well exactly you just feed the machine a hundred thousand images of whatever you happen to have like you've really got no idea um what they are <laughs> uh <-huh. laughs> uh, and 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 so uh you evaluate the success of something like this. Uh, well, talk about that. How, how, how do you evaluate the success of, of, of an experiment? Yeah, absolutely. So just to recap, of course, so at the end of all of this, we've got this map that takes an image and gives you a vector of numbers out. So it's not immediately clear 
like whether or not the vector that you got out is any good, right? And actually mm -hmm. telling mm -hmm. if it's a useful set of features is really, uh, really, really, really difficult. And so what people tend to do is they just essentially, they try it out. Uh, so they try it out on solving a number of different tasks that they may want to solve. So to evaluate how good that representation is, you would then get a labeled data set and you would train a model where the input to the model is the features you got out, the, the representation. Mm -hmm. And you would try to predict some quantity of interest, uh, some so, so like classified cats versus dogs. That, that, that you would be essentially testing that number cluster that that that, that you that you talked about, the that that whole bunch of numbers that pre presumably is tell you telling you what the model is valencing or saliencing. Yeah, exactly. So you take some, you take, you think of that as essentially uh, uh, some features now of that input, and you would train just a simple model like a decision tree or a linear classifier or a support vector machine, like whatever these kinds of like simpler models that people like to use are. And you would just try to predict something like you'd then use a data set of cat and dog images and you would then have the labels you'd have the annotations that these this is a cat that's a dog and you would try to train it to predict cat or dog and then you would evaluate how good it is at that prediction mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um and, and so that's one of the real big problems with these methods in my mind is that although the training process itself doesn't require any human annotations to run the problem is that in order to know how good your model is the best way people really have right now is to then use labeled data. So data with annotations to evaluate its quality. And so it's and kind of that intermediate stage of knowing how good a, a trained method is. There's no way of figuring that out without the annotations. I no see. And, and that's the laborious feature of all of this now. It's, it's right. I mean, yes, but the, the special thing about these contrastive learning methods is that the, the making training that simple model at the end to predict cat versus dog, should require much less data because you're not feeding it, uh, you're not asking the model to just learn uh, a mapping from uh, images all the way through to class because you've already learned a, a huge chunk of that process, so your images through to this vector of numbers. That's mm -hmm. already been done, that's already fixed. And all you need to do is kind of like the final step of going from that vector of numbers to a class prediction. Mm -hmm. And so the idea is that you should need much less labeled data, like the amount of human annotation could be like 10 or 100 times less than it was than, than was ah. necessary previously to get the same kinds of performance. Right, right. Uh, so it's about being more efficient with the labels that you have as well. I see. Oh, that's so, that's marvelous, right? I mean, the uh, the programming world would ex embrace that with uh, with open arms. Uh, of course, mm -hmm. we're still we're still going to need to train our models on specific Oh, problems or data sets. I mean, if we're training it to identify pneumonia or glioblastomas uh, or uh, lung cancers or uh, ACLs, uh, you know, I mean, yeah. that doesn't go away, right? <laughs> Absolutely. So the, the aim of the game is to sort of redistribute some of the computational effort so that it, so some of that effort is done previously beforehand using these contrastive methods or self-supervised methods. And so when you actually come to learn, trying to make a particular prediction, like lung cancer or not, that kind of thing, that, that the amount of work that needs to be done still to make that prediction, the amount of data that you need to learn to make a good model for that is much smaller, um, much easier to do. Right. Um, so, so, you're so, to there, so there's the value. There's one uh, aspect or one element of the value of what it is mm -hmm. you're doing. 
yeah 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 I, I that is true although i think that it's quite multifaceted in my mind because the, the real motivation for me is that this process of learning representation seems like a much more natural way of perceiving the world than just trying to make predictions and if you just take the analogy of us as as humans we're not these big black boxes that make predictions about a and b and c like we're, we we have this uh, perception system that takes in raw visual data raw mm -hmm. audio data from the world and we just have an understanding in our mind of what's going on around us we just understand uh, the world around us so that when we do decide to set ourselves some kind of goal or objective that we want to do this or that or the other we can use our understanding to very easily do what we want uh, and so it's that process of just understanding the world around you so that it's there and ready for when you may have some purpose for it mm -hmm. that's that's essentially the analogy uh, the uh, of what this contrastive learning or self-supervised learning is trying to do for machine learning models so i think it right. makes a lot right. it's better aligned with the way that i I very naively think of how uh, uh, the human intelligence works in that regard. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I don't think we've talked though about the implicit feature, uh, feature modification aspect of, of your work, mm -hmm. which, which is very intriguing. So, so tell us about that. Sure, so to, to do a quick recap on this contrastive learning, we're basically gonna give it uh, pairs of similar images and pairs of dissimilar images. The dissimilar ones will be like a picture of a cat and a picture of an elephant, or a picture of a cow and a picture of a plane, like just completely unrelated. And we wanted to be able to tell that the pair of similar images is, is a pair of similar images, whereas the dissimilar one is not. We wanted to be able to correctly classify essentially similar versus dissimilar. And when you make it do that, it will learn some features of the data, um, but it may just learn something very simple uh, that's enough to tell the difference between a similar pair and a dissimilar pair. So say it may just learn to look at, oh, actually we can just look at the color of, of like the color histogram or like, you know, the, the, the most common color uh, in that data and just make the prediction based on, make the distinction between similar and dissimilar based on that. And so that would be an example of one of these shortcuts where, okay, it has solved exactly. the task you asked it to do, but it used a very simple piece of information from your data to do that. And so if you needed to use this model uh, to solve tasks that required more complex amounts of information, then you're kind of in trouble. And so what our implicit feature modification method uh, is trying to do is to try to essentially make it learn to solve this task of telling the difference between similar and dissimilar samples in multiple different ways. So one of those ways might be, okay, we're going to look at the color. And that's one way to distinguish between the similar and dissimilar, mm -hmm. but we would also like it to say, okay, well, don't use color this time, but right. learn a you, different you, way. You'll take color out. You'll, you'll, you'll take you'll color out of the color. picture. Yeah. We'll take color out of the images and we will ask it to tell the difference between these similar and dissimilar pairs uh -huh. in a different way. Um, and then we'd essentially want it. And then in, in the process, we've asked it, we've, oh, that we forced the model in some way to extract different types of information from your data. Uh, and that means that you have a better chance, depending on what you want to do with this model later on, of it actually working. So, if, mm -hmm. so if I am uh, an, an imaging specialist doing research and I'm trying to evolve a, a model and it's just not generalizing at all, it's just, uh, and I don't know what's wrong with it. Am I going to be able to come to you and say, Josh, could, could you kind of tune my model up or, or at least figure out wh where 
what is it doing wrong? What is it fixating on that it shouldn't be fixating on? Is, is that going to be something that I'll be able to do with, with, with your research and your work? Well, I make no promises, but you could always try it. Um, <laughs> the, one of the important things to emphasize, though, about our work is this, this word implicit. So we are not literally going into our data, or into our images and modifying the color in the images. We're not literally doing that. Uh -huh. What we do instead is we modify the, the representation, this vector that we're getting out at the end. We perturb it a bit. We slightly change the numbers mm -hmm. in it in such a way as to essentially make that, make that vector now be uh, bad at solving this task of the, telling the difference uh -huh. between similar and dissimilar. So we don't change anything about the images themselves. It's all in the representation. And, and would that would I be right in thinking that that representation ultimately is kind of like a prototype that cognitive psychologists talk about the prototype that you and I use to identify a cow to identify a cat? I mean, it's a statistical model, isn't it? I mean, because yeah. it's not a it's not a concrete particular. Yeah, absolutely. And in fact, there's an entire line of work in self-supervised learning, which is called prototypical learning, wow. where they use methods that are very directly uh, motivated by this idea of learning prototypes uh, to train these kinds of models. So absolutely, people do that. Um, um, one of the important things to emphasize about this implicit feature modification, however, is that it means that because, because you're changing stuff in your uh, feature vector, it's very difficult to actually know from our method what about your data it's um, modifying. So although I was giving you the example of, oh, well, maybe it's predicting based on color. And, and so we're gonna remove the color and ask it to solve the task again. Mm -hmm. uh, we actually, at no point during our method, do we know that it's the color that we're removing. It's very difficult to tell that. So we're just removing some information in a more abstract sense, some information uh -huh. uh, from it and asking it to resolve. And so this is why I try to sort of steer away from making any kind of interpretability claims at all, because our method is still kind of um, uninterpretable in, in, in that kind of sense that we never that, really know what the shortcut was that we fixed. Right, but, but then that begs the question of, is that going to be the next phase of your research to continue <laughs> to refine, to continue to uh, get better information about that those vector numbers and what they ultimately represent. Yeah, I mean, this is definitely something that I, I think about, uh, and it's definitely something that, you know, is of, of great interest. The, the reason why we chose the method that we did in the end is essentially out of a desire for simplicity in a computational sense. Yeah. So we wanted to come up with some method that didn't require any kind of human intervention. It was completely automated. And it also didn't increase the computational cost of this whole uh, whole procedure. So it wasn't going to require 20 hours to train this model instead of 10. We didn't want to increase that kind of uh, training time that required. So we wanted to come up with some essentially free method for uh, improving uh, the quality of these models. So, and so we, that, that was really the question we wanted to ask ourselves is what, what can we get for ourselves for free, you know, in, in terms of like com compute and so on? Like, is that what, what little like benefit can we buy ourselves? Right, right. So, so would it be correct to think that if your work continues to bear fruit, that it would become a kind of uh, uh, essential, uh, familiar uh, uh, aspect of developing a model that research imaging specialist researchers would just 
naturally go to in two, three, four years when, when you have it perfected. You'll, you'll want to take it out to the marketplace, obviously. Um, so how do you envision uh, that, that happening? Am I, am I right in, in, in anticipating where uh, this, this model might go in the marketplace? Well, I, I, again, wouldn't want to make anything, any too grand a claim about our particular method, but I do think that this whole line of work on trying to understand the features in your data that your model uses is clearly critically important uh, and uh, to um, problems in radiology and so on. And I think that progress as a community that goes into better understanding this question will eventually filter through to these kinds of uh, key applications of this for sure. Right. Um, but it's very difficult to say exactly when that will be. For, for now, it seems in my mind that really the best you can do is uh, given your current model to do essentially a very rigorous evaluation of the model. So you have uh, you have this model, you know, it's not really perfect. So, but what we'd really like to know is in what ways is it not perfect? Like when, when do we expect it to fail? When, it, when do we expect us to succeed? And to just incorporate that information uh, into how this thing is used in practice. This seems for now uh, to be the most viable current uh, um, way forwards. Right, um, right. So I guess that brings me to a concluding uh, question for our, for our interview, and that is the future. When you look into that crystal ball, uh, what, what are you seeing as the really trenchant uh, challenges that that uh, await you, uh, especially after you get that PhD and you set up your own lab and you know and you and you move forward. Um, what are the things that you're excited about? I mean, where where do you see this field, if it's possible to answer a question like this, in five years? Oh yeah, I mean, this is super hard. There's so many things going on that it's really hard to tell who's whose work's gonna gonna pay off, but. What I could tell you is maybe some uh, views on what I think is missing from our methods uh, sure. that will be necessary for us to move towards a more general form of in, uh, intelligent behavior. Uh, and th the first of them we've been talking a lot about today already, which is this uh, ability to learn from data that doesn't have supervision. So just raw data that comes to us from the world. Uh, I think this is a key thing that we're making a lot of progress on, but I think that it's just the beginning still of trying to develop these methods because it's only been in the last couple of years or so that this, uh, this whole line of work has really emerged as being important. I think another really key thing that's definitely missing is, and this is a bit different, by the way, from things that might be used for um, medical imaging, but I think another really key thing that is missing is that there is no kind of... Um, clear reasoning process that is going on in these models. So there's, there's, these models are essentially good at basic perception, like viewing like uh, images and sort of just having a kind of a understanding the basic parts of that image, but there is not a very good capability in any, in, in many of these, uh, uh, many methods out there uh, for this thing to do some kind of abstract reasoning about things to sort of envisage uh, counterfactuals or to imagine uh, and, and like there's, and excuse me there's lots of thinkers who believe that that's never going to happen uh, <laughs> uh, I mean un unless we can come up with an alternative to silicon uh, <laughs> that is going to enable the technology to more mimic the human brain with our hundred billion neurons and mm -hmm. uh, what quadrillions of synapses and uh, off and on switches and 
uh, presumably that's a very long way off. Excuse me for interrupting. Oh, oh absolutely. This is very much a, a long way off. But the way I think about these things is that we kind of have, we have this kind of like big uh, onion with these layers of different kinds of tasks that we're able to perform. And so we've there's sort of like a, a certain uh, number of tasks that our methods are currently able to solve. And in the, the grand goal, which we've been just discussing is this kind of like form of general intelligence would be able to solve all of these tasks. And I'm not expecting that that's going to happen anytime soon, but we can sort of peel layers off bit by bit, like tasks that previously we didn't know how to solve. We, we would now be able to have some methods that would work better on uh, and so on and so forth. And really just to work on it step by step. Right. So yeah, no, absolutely. We're not going to be solving uh, any kind of general intelligence anytime soon, for sure. And, and Josh, this is a question from left field. Maybe we'll edit it out because it's a kind of a screwball question. <laughs> okay. uh, but uh, but uh, what about the mathematics of, of, of all of this? Sometimes I wonder uh, that human beings have hit upon uh, a set of research questions that they simply don't have the, 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 the resources, the cognitive resources, Mm -hmm. um, the scientific resources, and maybe something like the mathematics to solve this kind of stuff, you know, that, that, that ultimately we're, we're just going to slam into a wall and we won't be able to get beyond it because the subject matter just exceeds our, our intellectual, our uh, capacity, our uh, cognitive resources. What, it's, I mean, does that, is that something that you wonder about, worry about, think about? I don't worry too much about uh, lacking the right mathematical tools in machine learning because by and large, and this is not, in not true for everyone, but by and large, the maths that people use in machine learning is comparatively simple stuff. Um, in, in the grand scheme of the mathematical world out there, the tools that people actually use in machine learning is really not uh, even scratching the surface of what people have developed. Uh, and, and so I think there's a whole well of, uh, of tools out there that we could uh, draw upon uh, if, if we found them to be useful. And so I don't think that uh, in the same way, maybe with uh, theoretical physics, they may really be lacking the right mathematical tools and therefore have to go to develop them. I don't think we have that same kind of problem of lacking the, the, the means mm -hmm. to articulate our ideas in, in this field right now, um, simply because machine learning is a much, much a younger field than something like theoretical physics. Uh, we're at a much earlier stage in our in our progress compared to them. Indeed, indeed. Well, I think that's a good place on which to stop. Josh, thank you so much for uh, for your time. Really appreciate it. I know that our listeners are going to be fascinated with uh, with with what you are doing. So again, <laughs> thank you very very much for this. My pleasure. Thanks, John. Thanks again to Joshua Robinson for his insights and progressive learning and deep learning models. Thanks also to Sam Kim, who did the audio production of this podcast, and to the staff at Emory University's Center for Ethics, who maintained the podcast webpage. We also thank the Advanced Radiology Services Foundation and Emory University's Department of Radiology and Imaging Sciences for their financial support. And in case you're wondering, that's me at the piano. Please follow the projects and activities of Emory Center for Ethics on Facebook and Twitter and at our website, ethics.emory.edu. I'm John Banja. Join us for future podcasts, and thanks for listening.